0: Amen. Praise Jesus. Good morning, Anacostia River Church. Good morning. Hallelujah. How you doing this morning? Wonderful. Wonderful. If you could, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you need a Bible, please just raise your hand. Raise it high. And you said 961? Um, Pastor Matt said it's on 961. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 reads... Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Please join me and let us go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help me to make much of your son Jesus Christ this morning through the preaching and teaching of your holy word. Help my message and my preaching to be very plain and guard me from the temptation of trying to sound clever in order to impress men. Rather than using clever and persuasive speech, help me to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit so that no one here today would trust in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Please stir the affections of our heart to love Christ more in your glorious gospel, which is able to save the most vilest sinner. Many of us in this room are living proof of that, and we praise you for your mercy and grace. Your mercy and grace that has been graciously displayed towards us. If there is anyone who doesn't know you today, please let the light of your gospel shine into their heart so that they can see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, O Lord, please allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. At the very beginning of this chapter, Paul reminds the church in Corinth of something that is very familiar to them. It was a message that they had heard before. As a matter of fact, if you can turn to um, Acts 18, Acts chapter 18, verses 4 and 5. And it says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived at Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Verse 11 reads, and he stayed a year and six months teaching word of God among them." So when he comes now and he says, I want to remind you of the gospel, he's reminding them of something that they had already heard. It was something that they were familiar with. And this morning, I'm reminding you of something that you're familiar with. But as Pastor said, don't allow you being familiar with the gospel to make your heart dull towards it. Worship this Christ who died for sinners. May God, the God of the gospel open our eyes afresh to see him. Amen. Amen. I believe one of the reasons Paul felt the need to remind the believers in Corinth of the gospel is because he wanted to make sure that they were careful not to emphasize or to elevate the gifts of the Spirit, like prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, interpreting tongues, the working of miracles, etc., over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had just got finished teaching for three chapters straight on the gifts of the Spirit before he arrived in chapter 15. We see in chapter 12 that he's teaching on spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, he talks about the way of love, pointing out that you could be very gifted, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. And in chapter 14, he talks about prophecy and tongues. And then we arrive in chapter 15 And he now reminds them of the gospel. It's almost like he's so eager to get back to talking about the gospel, the message of first importance. I also believe that the reason why Paul felt the need to remind the believers in Corinth of the gospel is because it's so easy at times for us to lose our grasp on it. We are consistently slipping into legalism and or we go in the opposite direction and fall into condemnation. Both are deadly. That's why we consistently need to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So we see in verse one, he says, now I would remind you, brothers. Notice that he says, brothers, brothers. You don't call someone a brother or sister in Christ unless they're in the Lord. And he says, I want to remind you, brothers, so he's speaking to believers. And he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you. A lot of times we think that the gospel is just for unbelievers. But believers need the gospel just as much as unbelievers We need to hear the gospel over and over again, each and every single day. We need to be reminded that our sin has been canceled because of the blood of Jesus. So he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. They had received this gospel. They didn't just hear this gospel, but they received this gospel. They embraced this gospel. And he says, in which you stand, you are standing on this gospel. You are anchored in this gospel and by which you are being saved. The gospel not only saves, but the gospel sustains. It continues to help you work in sanctification as you grow more into the likeness of Christ. But he says this, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, that we must hold fast to the gospel by his grace. In CJ Mahaney's book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, CJ mentions three tendencies that tend to draw us away from the gospel. Number one, emotionalism. Emotionalism, which means basing our view on God or our changing feelings or emotions basing our view of God on our changing feelings and emotions. Emotionalism is when we allow our feelings to rule what we say, do, or think. It shapes how we view life and affects our view of God. But it doesn't matter how we feel. The fact is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and said it is finished. And because he said it is finished, that's what we base our salvation on, our trust and faith in him, not how we feel. The second thing he points out that we tend to fall into this trap is legalism, which means basing our relationship with God on our own performance. Sinclair Ferguson says this, how easily we fall into the trap of assuming that we remain justified only so long as there are grounds in our character for justification. Thomas Schreiner writes this, Legalism has its origin in self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they would merit praise honor and glory. Legalism, in other words, means the glory goes to people rather than God. But Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by the grace of God, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone would boast. We are saved by grace and grace alone, by faith in Christ, not by our works, but by the finished work that was accomplished on the cross on our behalf. The third thing that we tend to fall into is condemnation, which means focusing more on our sin than on God's grace. When we fall into condemnation, we're focusing more on our sin than upon God's grace. But we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. So as you can see, we all need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to speak the gospel to one another. We need to speak the gospel to ourselves. We need to be reminded of the gospel. And... In verse 2, he, he says at the end of the verse, unless you believed in vain. Paul knows that there's some people there in Corinth that might have heard the gospel and believed in vain. There might have been some people who heard it and embraced it with their minds, but didn't truly grasp it with their hearts. Some of them might have believed like the demons did in James chapter 2, verse 19, where it says that even the demons believe and tremble, but it's not enough to save them. They haven't repented and trusted in the Lord. They will end up in hell because it's a knowledge with their minds, but it's not unto saving faith. And there's some people in Corinth that might have believed in vain. And I want to say, in this room, there could be some individuals that might have believed in vain. Only the Lord knows. But to believe in vain means just to believe in your head. But to truly believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ means you repent. You turn from your sin and you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. There was a time in my life when I had believed in vain. I used to walk around saying that I believed in Jesus Christ, that he was my Lord and Savior. I confessed him with my mouth, but as the scripture says, my heart was far from God. And I walked around thinking that I was a true believer, but went in the world and lived like the devil. I confessed him with my mouth, but my my lifestyle was far from the confession that I made. But when I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, I received it one day by the grace of God and was transformed by his transforming power and was born again, transformed and given new life in Christ. I plead with you today, if the gospel is only head knowledge to you, but it hasn't truly affected your life, I ask you to surrender. I plead with you to surrender your life, repent, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus. And for us who are believers, continue to repent and trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So, with the remaining verses, I want to point out three things and I want to point out four facts. The first thing I want to point out is this, that the gospel is of first importance. Paul says that I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the gospel I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. Paul says that the gospel is of first importance. Now let's, let's not just breeze over that. In this book, Absolutely everything is important. All 66 books are important. The Bible says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed out. By God. So this is all important. Everything from Genesis to Revelation. But Paul says that there's one thing that is of first importance, there's something that surpasses everything else. And he says that the gospel is of first importance. So here's four facts I want to point out. I want to point out this fact, that Christ died for our sins. And I just don't want to breeze over that either. The Bible says that Christ died for our sins. Every last one of us in this room have have sinned. Every last one of us have broken God's holy standard. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin... Is death, that we deserve to die because of our sin. The Creator who created us, we have rebelled against our Creator. And because of that, we deserve God's perfect justice and wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. But the Bible also teaches that God sent his son, that he demonstrated his love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And he died for the ungodly. He died for wicked, rebellious people. If he had not died, we would have no hope whatsoever. But Christ died for sinners. Christ died for sexual immorality. Christ died for impurity. Christ died for sensuality. Christ died for sorcery. Christ died for enmity. Christ died for strife. Christ died for jealousy. Christ died for fits of anger and hatred. Christ died for divisions and dissensions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies. Christ died for homosexuality. Christ died for drug addicts and porn addicts. Christ died for self-centered people and self-righteous people. Christ died for sin. He died for sin. He was crushed for sin. Isaiah passage that my sister read, that sister Jamie read from Isaiah 53. Oh, what a glorious passage. I I just want to read that again. I was thinking, I, I just want to read it again. And this passage, you know, was prophesied 600 years before Christ was crucified. So when Paul says, I'm preaching a message that is according to the scriptures, he's like, man, this is not a new message, I'm preaching something that was proclaimed 600 years before Christ came on a scene. Listen to this, and listen with fresh ears. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, our Savior. And as one from whom men hid faces, He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne the grief of and carried our our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus is in the garden and he says, is there any other way? Not my will, but your will be done. And this was the will of the Lord to crush him. He had to crush him because no one else would have been able to make sinners like us righteous. There wasn't a man walking the planet who could make a sinner like us righteous other than Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He was the only one. There was no other way. So God had to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He not only died, but he's making intercession for transgressors. Think of that for a minute. As you sit here, Jesus is praying for you, believer. When you leave to go home, he's praying for you. When you drive to whatever, wherever you may go, and he's praying for you. When you go to sleep... And you're not active, he's praying for you. What a beautiful thing to know. The second fact that I want to point out from the scriptures is that he was buried. Verse 4 He was buried. Now, why does he take time to say that he was buried? Because you only bury a corpse. The scriptures wants to make very clear to us that he was actually dead. That Christ actually died and they buried him. The fourth fact I want to point out is that Christ rose from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave. But 3 days later he rose from the grave. And the fourth fact that I want to point out is that he appeared that's a fact. Christ appeared. He was seen. He was seen. So, I want to point out that not only is the gospel of first importance, but the gospel is also trustworthy and true. The gospel's also trustworthy and true. Verse 5 says, to Cephas. Cephas, who is Peter. Now, why is that significant? If y'all remember in Mark chapter 14, remember, Peter's like, man, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus is like, man, deny me. You're going to do it three times. And he was like, I'll never deny you. I'll never do that, Lord. I'll never, ever deny you. And then what happens? Peter ends up denying him they come to Peter and they say, Peter, do you know Jesus? And Jesus, you know, Peter's like, no, no, I don't know him. And then another person comes and says, do you know this Jesus? And he's like, no, I don't know him. And then another person comes and Peter swears and says, no, I do not know him. And he cowards away when he's crucified. But then all of a sudden out of Nowhere what happens after that is something happens in Peter's life after Christ was crucified and rose. Peter then becomes a bold preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he proclaims the gospel with boldness. He was even willing to be persecuted and to even give his life and die. Something happened to Peter. What happened to Peter? This is what happened to Peter. He saw the resurrected Christ. The Bible says that Christ appeared to Peter in verse 5. Then it says to the 12. And then it says he appeared in verse 6 to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Think about that for a minute. Just look around in this room. Maybe in this room there's probably 150 people. 500 witnesses would be three times more than every single person in this room. It would be three times more than the people in this room. So imagine if every single person was coming up and saying, I saw Christ. Oh, I saw him rose from the dead. And then another person says, oh, I saw him rose from the dead. And then another person says, I saw him rose from the dead. 500 individuals. You would be pretty convinced. So Peter, who denied Christ three times, was transformed. And then after he was transformed, he went on proclaiming Christ. That should say and speak of the power of the gospel. And then 500 witnesses say we saw him too, but it doesn't stop there. It goes to say that James, that he appeared to James as well. Now, why does it mention James? I believe the Bible is talking specifically about the brother James, Jesus' half-brother. There was a point where James did not believe. There was a point where the Bible says that his brothers didn't believe. But if you look at Acts 1, all of a sudden now you see the the brothers are fellowshipping with one another. Which means that his brother came to repentance and faith. What happened to James? He had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And then, last... Of all. Also to me is what Paul says. Now, how powerful is that? The Apostle Paul was a man, if you remember, who was persecuting the church. He was a man where the Bible says he was breathing murder and threats against the church. The Bible says that he went in different homes and pulled out women and people out of their homes. He persecuted them. He was there when Stephen was martyred. Paul was there watching, giving approval to Stephen's death. He approved murder. He was trying to put an end to Christianity or any person who confessed Christ. And then what does Paul say? He says, man, he appeared to me. And then Paul goes on preaching this glorious gospel. He's transformed from a murderer to a missionary. Amen. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ could do this. Amen. So what happened to Paul? He had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. My mic is out, y'all. I'm just going to speak up. <laughs> Okay, amen, amen. He had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Amen. So praise Jesus for his gospel. So the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is trustworthy and true. We see that from the witnesses of Peter, James, Paul and 500 witnesses. There's enough evidence there that he rose from the dead. And the last thing I want to point out is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is life transforming. It changes people's lives. Look at verse nine. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Listen in verse nine how, and in verse eight, how Paul talks about himself his former self. He says he was the last, so he was the last person that Christ appeared to. The Bible also says that he was the least, and he says, I was also unworthy. That's how he defines himself, the last, the least, and unworthy. But look at what happens as we read further. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. I was the last, the least, and unworthy. But by his grace, I am what I am. And his grace was not in vain. Over the last, God writes grace over that. Over the least, God writes grace over that. Over unworthy, God writes grace over that. Many of us in this room can testify and say we were the last, the least, and unworthy. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. And His grace was not in vain. Hallelujah. And he says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. So he wasn't boasting, he was just saying, man, the same grace that saved me is the same grace that empowered me to go forth and labor for the kingdom, to plant churches, to write letters, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. The same grace that saved me is the same grace that propelled me to go forth and labor for the kingdom of God. And that same grace is the grace that not only saves us, but sends us forth to proclaim, thank you brother, the gospel of Jesus. So the gospel is not only of first importance, the gospel is trustworthy and true. And the gospel also transforms lives. There's many people that could raise their hand in this room and say that my life has been transformed by this gospel. And the fact that you believe, amen, shows that there is a resurrected Christ. The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead has risen you from the dead spiritually. And because Christ has risen, we will rise with him. The Bible says that I have been crucified with Christ and that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me and gave himself for me. Praise Jesus. Praise God that there are transformed lives by his grace. The labor that we see going on in Anacostia is by his grace. By the grace of God go we as a church in Acostia River Church. And by the grace of God will we continue. So praise God for his gospel. Amen. In ending, this is not something I had written down, but I would like us to sing this song. If you have this brochure here, turn to page 7. And I want us to sing together with no music, acapella, (laughs) sing together. I want us to sing together, and as you sing, think about how, how your sins have been canceled and how, because of that, we ought to count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, we've suffered a loss of all things and count them as trash and rubbish. In order that we may gain Christ, all we have is Christ.